Uh, welcome, everyone. You could, you could always, you know, move to the center here. So it's good that you're on both sides because we'll be using the altar. But um, it would be, uh, if you move to the center, that's, that, that's great. Uh, welcome to Didache. Uh, this is the Didache Divine Service. So um, the preaching, there's always, before you receive the Lord's Supper, there's always preaching. The preaching for the Didache Divine Service is in the form of the catechesis that we'll spend about an hour with before then having the sacrament. Okay? Um, you'll need the New King James Bible. And I'd like everyone to have a New King James you might have a Lutheran study Bible, but it's English standard version, and it will not be the same text. We have our own here, or you're certainly welcome to get one. And then there is the Lutheran catechesis, which has in it, um, we're going to be following each of the lessons. So uh, the first lesson is on page 34 and following. So it's good if you have that within eyeshot, especially when we look at the catechism, uh, in detail, okay? So I've also handed out for you, there's a blue sheet that gives you the schedule, and most of our classes are on Thursday night. There is an occasional Monday, and it comes right away next week on Monday because I have to be in St. Louis for the Board for National Mission meeting uh, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. So I don't want to delay right after we get started. So uh, our second lesson will be Monday night. All of our sessions will be recorded. So I recognize from time to time someone is sick or has some other conflict and you want to be here but you can't, it will be recorded. And we post those online uh, under the additional recordings part of our website. Okay, so uh, let us begin with prayer, and then I'll have you turn to the Bible reading for today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, whom to know is everlasting life, grant us to know your Son, Jesus, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may boldly confess him to be the Christ, and steadfastly walk in the way that leads to life eternal. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And if you'll turn in your Bible to Luke 16. So the Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I want you to turn to chapter 16, and we'll start reading at verse 14, but I want to ask you a couple of questions first. And I'll preface the questions by saying one other bit of an uh, introduction. We will always use a principal reading from the scriptures, most often a narrative. By a narrative, I mean it tells the story, like the story of the prodigal son or something like that, or the account of creation. Okay, so there'll be one principal reading which we will 
really chew on in the form of questions and answers and so forth, okay? I won't embarrass anybody, but I will ask you for, I will ask you some questions, okay? Tonight, um, our reading will get us into the first, second, and third commandments. So when we talk about the catechism, the catechism is made up of what is sometimes called six chief parts of Christian doctrine, Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. Those are the first three. And then the key texts on the sacrament of holy baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the six parts. Those texts were not written by Martin Luther. They are found in the Bible, and in those texts, they were handed, they were always used as a part of the church's catechesis for incoming converts. What Luther did in his small catechism is take those texts that were always a part of the church's catechesis and craft his um, meditative explanations to each of the commandments, each of the articles of the creed, the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and so forth. He also, in his small catechism, had a section of daily prayers. And our structure of the congregation at prayer that all of you are familiar with that's in the bulletin follows the basic pattern laid down in the daily prayer section of the catechism, invocation, apostles' creed, Lord's prayer, morning or evening prayer, and a hymn. And our congregation at prayer follows that same basic structure, adding psalmody and Bible readings to it. He also had the table of duties in the catechism, which was also something handed down to him, these lists of biblical passages about one's station in life. Are you a father? Are you a mother, a husband or wife, or so forth? And Luther uh, completely revamped that uh, table of duties, and then uh, that part became a part of the catechism as well. All right? But what we focus on in the Didache are the six chief parts those primary texts. And so I said tonight, the first three commandments, okay? Now, before going to the reading from Luke 16, I have some questions for you. Do you think there's any such thing as an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God? Anybody? Do you think there's such thing as an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God? Marty, what do you think? Well, you can define it. You think there are people who don't believe in the true God, but is there, some, is there such a thing as a person who has no God? What, yeah, so what would constitute a God for someone? What would constitute a God, Amy? Yeah, whoever or whatever, it may not be a person, right? Whatever they put their trust in. It, it could be themselves. They could trust themselves. They could be their own God. I've had atheists tell me, I have no God. I trust in myself. They're their own God. What are some of the other things that people place their trust in? You see, a God is whatever a person looks to for their greatest good in life, for their greatest comfort in life, and so forth. 
A 401k, all right. Yeah, your, your tax-sheltered annuity, your 401k, your retirement income, your financial security, money. Cherie? Your reputation. Yeah, a person's reputation, like they go on some radio program and they get some uh, accolades and then that, that's what they live for is the, the praise and the accolades, right? Okay. Yeah, a person's reputation, position in life, standing. Anything else? Things. Things, material, material stuff. You know, your, your, your house, your, your home, your boat, your, uh, your go-kart. Did you have a go-kart as a kid, Tyler? Did you? Your motorcycle. Okay. Could be your spouse or your children. Yeah. You can make a God out of very good things. I mean, we do need money, right? We do need food. We do need drink. But, of course, they can totally obsess us, including a spouse or children or family. They can become the one thing we can't live without. And that's a good way to find out what is my God that if this were taken from me, I'd kill myself or it would destroy me. You know, whatever a person trusts in is their God. It could be their education. It could be their social standing. It could be their accomplishments, you know, how far they've gone up the, the ladder in the company and they become the, the CEO or whatever it is that they become, okay? Whatever a person looks to for their greatest good, their ultimate good is their God. Or, as I said, to put it another way, that one thing that I can't live without this, I've got to have this, okay? Now, some people actually, go ahead, Sheree. I, I was thinking it could also be your health. That's right. Your own, your own life, your own health. Now, a lot of these things that we've just mentioned, they're all good things, right? There's nothing wrong with your husband. Well, I mean, maybe there is, but you get the idea, right? Okay? There's nothing wrong with your children. Well, okay, you love your children, but, but you can make a god out of them, okay? Which would include, you know, things like your health. Amy? We all do that, absolutely. So idolatry is when you worship or trust in or rely upon someone who is not the true God. Someone or something that is not the true God. Yes. Now what you say, don't we all do that? Did you think when you came here tonight you were without sin? Okay. At the heart of sin is mistrust or wrong trust or wrong faith. Either the absence of trust in the true God or trust in the wrong thing, reliance upon the wrong thing. So if we, she says, if we would keep the first commandment, we would probably keep all of the commandments. Not probably, we would. If we could keep the first commandment perfectly, which says, you shall have no other gods but me, yes, indeed, we would keep all of the commandments. All right, that's enough of a uh, preliminary discussion for then reading this text, okay? And I want you to start at verse 14, and we're recording it, so I, I will repeat, for the sake of people, if you're not hearing one another, I'll repeat things that you say, uh, answers that you give, or questions that you raise, so also for the benefit of the recording. So verse 14, the Pharisees 
who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Now, the things that they heard, he had just told the parable of the unjust steward. Prior to that, the parable of the prodigal son. Prior to that, the parable of the lost coin. Prior to that, the parable of the lost sheep. How many of you have at least an acquaintance with those parables? Lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son, unjust steward. That's a weird one. There's an accusation against him that he's cheating his master and he's going to lose the stewardship. So he goes out and he alters the accounts. And uh, yeah, then he really does cheat the master. And then he's commended in the end because the people whose accounts he reduced, well, they're going to like him and receive him into their home. So they hear Jesus, they derided him for these teachings. Those are the most immediate teachings recorded in Luke's gospel. Okay, Now, how many of you have heard of Pharisees before? Uh, if I had asked you prior to this reading, what do Pharisees typically trust in or worship? What would you have said based on your acquaintance? The law. The law? Good. You want to expand on that? Anybody? Their works done according to the law. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So the law or their works done according to the law. Okay? But isn't it interesting here, Luke records the Pharisees were lovers of money. Which, of course, Keith, may have come from their works. Right? Kevin, uh, Kevin sorry. There's too many Keiths and Kevins in your family. Okay. <laughs> Uh, are you with me there? So they're lovers of money. How do you get money? You work for it, right? So look at what I have. Look at what I have. Look at what I have done. done. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at what I have earned, okay? Puff up your chest and so forth, okay? So the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. So right at the outset, Luke is recording that their God was their, their money, their wealth, what they had achieved for themselves. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What does it mean to justify yourself before someone? To defend, to defend yourself. How dare you talk to me like that? Right? And... For most of us, the worst thing that could happen is if we were insulted. Or insulted, depending on how you pronounce that word. Right? If you're insulted in some way or offended in some way, you're defensive. Okay? That was the Pharisees. Again, Kevin. Why? Because they trusted in their works. That's right. Okay? So, what do you mean, my... What do you mean my poop doesn't stink, so to speak, you know, all right? So they were those who justified themselves. I am righteous. I'm not at fault. The Pharisees would not have admitted any idolatry, okay? In fact, would they have said they believe in God? Yes. Now, when Kevin says they, are, they, they relied on the law, to perform the works. So for them, even God's law, see, I've done these laws, I've done these works, right? God, now you, 
you owe me ante up because I've performed these works. You follow? But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So to love money, to rely upon your works, to offer your deeds to God done according to the law and demand that he pay you or ante up for what you've done, to defend yourself against accusations of wrongdoing. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God, which then could include Sheree relying upon all of those things that we mentioned, our position, our wealth, our status, and so forth. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Now who knows what is he referring to by this phrase? It occurs a lot, especially in Luke's gospel, but really in all the gospels, the law and the prophets. That's a designation for something. Does anyone know? Caleb? The Old Testament scriptures. The law would refer to what part? The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and the prophets, basically the rest. Sometimes you have the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay, But law and the prophets. So that refers to the entire Old Testament. So the law and the prophets were until John. You know, okay, So the Old Testament up until John. Does anybody know which John we're talking about here? Becca? Not the apostle, John the baptizer, that prepared the way for Jesus' coming. Okay? So the Old Testament scriptures were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached by John and then by Jesus. And everyone is pressing into it, but not the Pharisees. Those who heard John preach, do you know what they did? Does anybody remember? He preached repentance, which is a word that is about showing them their sin and their need for a savior. So he preached repentance. And then what did the people do? They, they came out to him confessing their sins and were baptized in the Jordan River. Jesus came preaching. And the multitudes, not the Pharisees, not the scribes, not those who trusted in the works of the law, but the common people were pressing about him to hear the word of God. So it's describing that here. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. John did it, Jesus did it, and everyone is pressing into it in repentance, confessing their sins and they're baptized. Say, I, this is a little trivia for you, since... Most all of you have grown up in the church and been acquainted in the church in some respect. Who baptized more, John the Baptist or Jesus? Jesus. Now, not Jesus directly, but his disciples. But John also didn't baptize directly, but his disciples. It's found in John chapter 4, by the way. It says that Jesus baptized more disciples than John. How about that? Little little bit of trivia, but it's of a significant nature. So people were hearing this preaching. They're realizing 
let's put it in the context of gods or idolatry, they realized all of the false gods of their lives, all of the things that they trusted in that could not save them, that could not help them. And they're pressing to get in because they came to John or they came to Jesus and his disciples in repentance, confessing their sins, and they were baptized. Now, what did this baptism give? Forgiveness of sins, that's right. Uh, look at, already in our discussion, we've talked about the law, and we've talked about baptism, we've talked about forgiveness, we've talked about repentance, these sorts of things. All right, coming back down here, everyone is pressing into it, and it is easier, verse 17, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fall away. Now, that word tittle refers to the smallest stroke in a Hebrew letter. It's a, it's a way of saying not one word of God's word will pass away, the law or the prophets. Not one of them will pass away. All will be fulfilled. And then he says something else here. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Doesn't that verse seem out of place from the discussion that was just had? Okay. Well, there's two things going on here. First of all, Jesus is teaching the relentless nature of the law to the Pharisees, Kevin, who trusted in the law and their works according to the law, but who believed that they had what with the law? They've kept the law. They've kept the law. We have kept the law. We have kept the law. We are righteous. How dare you accuse me of being a sinner? Tyler Haga, I am righteous. I keep the law. Okay? So this business about adultery, which is, which commandment, by the way? You shall not commit adultery. Sixth commandment. For the Pharisees, we have never committed adultery. Yeah, but you've had six wives. Well, but we legally got divorced from the first through the fifth before we got the sixth. There's no adultery. So what he's doing here in this moment is in, this is scandalous to the Pharisees. Because that's what they believed about the sixth commandment. You could have as many wives as you wanted because according to the law of Moses, there was a provision, Kevin, for divorce. Now, don't try to invoke it. Okay? There was a provision for divorce so that they could, if they didn't like the way she did this, that, or the other thing, he could write a certificate of divorce, dismiss her, and go on to the next woman. And the Pharisees did that. And they, looking at the earlier verses, they did it, and they did it by doing what? If any accusation would come against them. You know, verse, uh, yes, verse 15, right? They justified themselves, all right? In another place where Jesus speaks about adultery in this way, he said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well then, who, who escapes 
the accusing finger of the law, nobody, okay? So this, what seems like an out of place thing, for the Pharisees, it would have been a scandalous thing. What do you mean we've committed adultery? And again, the Pharisees were the great ones at trying to justify themselves before others on the basis of their works. By the way, do you know what they also, these lovers of money would do? I can't be unrighteous because I'm wealthy. And everybody knows that if you're blessed with wealth, you must be pleasing to God. Prosperity gospel. And if you're not wealthy, or if you're going through hard times, obviously, Becca, you don't have enough faith. Okay? So the Pharisees were prosperity gospel people, absolutely. Our money is proof that we are righteous. God has blessed us. We've done the works of the law, and God has blessed us. We are righteous. Isn't that fantastically horrible? Thank God none of us ever justify ourselves and our own actions and defend ourselves in such a way as if we have no sin. Okay. Now we get into the parable. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. So notice, verse 19, there was a certain rich man. That goes back up to verse 14 about the Pharisees who were lovers of money. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now, if he's clothed in purple, that says something about his social status. What kind of a status did he have? Royal, yes, an honorable status, perhaps is a prominent official, governmental, or whatever in the community. He fared, he, and he's dressed in fine linen, and he fares sumptuously every day. I like that word, sumptuously. What do you think it means, Becca? Feasting, you know, eat, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for we have earned it, haven't we? Brian, we've earned it. Let us eat, okay? Bring the crab legs, the lobster. Bring the wine, okay? So he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Was the rich man given a name? No, because he could be just about anybody. But the beggar is given a name, and the name is Lazarus. Does anybody know what the name Lazarus means? Do you know, Caleb? Becca? God is my help. He was full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Verse 21. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. What is Abraham's bosom a figure of speech for? You know, if you lay your head on your mama's bosom, is that comforting, Becca, or when you were a little girl? I don't <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? Is it comforting for the baby? Yes. Okay, so what is Abraham's bosom a 
symbol for? Heaven, sure. So the beggar Lazarus died and went to heaven. Why, why is Abraham's, why is it Abraham? What's significant about Abraham in the Bible? The promise of the Savior was given to Abraham, the seed of Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That promise of the Savior given to Abraham. And Abraham believed that promise, and he was declared righteous. Yes. He was accounted righteous through faith in the promise of the Messiah. So that tells us something about the beggar Lazarus' faith. Who was his God, Tyler? The God of Abraham. That promised seed. He trusted in that. Okay. That's why uh, learning to know the Bible and the stories of the Bible is helpful in coming up with the vocabulary here. And why, why is Abraham's bosom a symbol for heaven? Because Abraham received the promise of salvation in his seed, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, who died upon the cross for us. And Abraham believed that, and he was declared righteous, saved from his sin. And so this beggar Lazarus, God is my help, not me, God is. The God who sent his only son. Okay, so there's, that's the faith of the beggar Lazarus. Now, before we go on, oh, one, uh, then the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So what happened to the rich man? He died, the beggar died. What happened? The beggar Lazarus went to heaven, Abraham's bosom. What happened to the rich man, Brian? He didn't go to Abraham's bosom. Okay, let's, we can just say he went to hell, okay? Hades, okay? What did the rich man trust in? Himself. Who was his God? Him, himself, his riches, the things that he had amassed. What is a beggar? Someone who not only has nothing, but there's one other feature about a beggar. Someone who is dependent upon someone outside of himself. That's right. Okay? What's the difference between these two characters? In other words, well, you just tell me. Just, I'll just leave the question there. What's the difference between these two? Hey, hey. Pride versus humility? Any other answers? Pride is a symptom, so is humility. Or a, an attribute to something. If you're proud, why are you proud? You're trusting in yourself. If you're truly humble, you're trusting in God. So what's the difference between these two? One is faith and one doesn't. Is the difference between these two that one is a sinner and one is not? 
No, there's no such thing as a person who isn't a sinner. The difference between these two is the faith of the heart. The one has the Lord as his God. The other has his wealth, his position, his works, himself as his God. It doesn't matter what it is if it's not Christ. Okay. There's the difference between the two. Now, pride is a characteristic of someone who trusts in themselves or their works or what have you. But drill down on that. The difference is the faith of the heart. Now, you are all baptized Christians that are here today. So the characteristic of a didache class changes depending upon the personality of the class, which is made up by the background of the people who are in it. So, um, Becca, do you always trust God at all times for everything? No. Neither do I. So what does that say about you and me if we don't always trust God at all times? We're sinners. We're sinners. Okay. Do you trust that Jesus is your Savior from sin? Yes. And what did he do for you that you trust in him? He died on the cross. And I believe that too. So notice there is in us and everybody else in this room, there is a dual nature to us, isn't there? And you've got, to, you've got to learn this, that the, the, at the heart of the sinful nature is idolatry. Let me repeat that again. The heart of the sinful nature is idolatry. Trust in anything or anyone but Christ. That's the nature of the sinner of our sinful nature. Does anybody know what the scriptures call that nature? Sinful nature would be one. Any other synonyms? Old Adam, Old Adam good. Any other ones? The flesh. the flesh, right. And there's no faith in the sinful flesh, Amy. There's no, there's no faith in Christ in the old Adam. Okay? So... This dual nature is very important because sometimes once I'm a Christian, then I don't have any struggle with sin any longer. Talk about pride and arrogance, right? Becca has a lot of friends that believe that, right? It is kind of true. Thank God we're not like them. Oh, there's that self-justifying thing again, okay? So, but this believing nature that trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is a part of us too. We're all baptized in this room and we believe in Jesus even though we struggle with sin in our lives. Uh, any other names? You know we had synonyms for the sinful nature, old Adam, flesh. What about this new nature? The new man. Okay. The new man, the new nature. In the Bible, it says, Galatians chapter 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit, who is the spirit of God who creates faith in our hearts, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another 
so that you do not do the things that you wish. Isn't that true? How many of you at the end of the week can look back and say, you know, every day this past week, I did and thought and said everything right. Well, talk about pride and arrogance, right? That would be a lie, first of all. Okay? And it would be an example of the self-justifying thing of the Pharisees. So I like to say, too, the old Adam, sinful flesh, every one of us has a Pharisee inside of us. A Pharisee who trusts in the works of the law and says, I thank God I'm better than those farmers down the street. At least I keep my animals in my yard and away from the neighbor's yard or whatever. Okay. So this means that we all need to hear these words about what the loss really says about idolatry in the call to repentance and to see our own self-righteousness, our own sin of making gods out of everyone and everything else and everything other than the true God. Okay? I could spend hours on this text, but I want you to go down a little bit further. Being in torments in Hades, this is verse 23, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of, uh, of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And those were the things that the rich man, what? Trusted in and had made a God of. You got what you wanted. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us in heaven and you there in hell, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So I guess your eternal destiny is decided at the time of your death. It's too late for the rich man. And you can't, you know, migrate back and forth, which, by the way, if you're trying to contact your late Uncle Harry, who's died, you can't. You can't. If you claim to, and you think it's Harry, it's not. But that's another subject. Like a demon impersonating your Uncle Harry. Anyway, he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, notice there's something that, even in hell, this rich man is demonstrating. Send Lazarus to do X, Y, and Z for me. 
What's he demonstrating there? Dustin. Well, his impenitence, sure, sure. How does he view the beggar Lazarus who is in heaven? Still, I am superior to him. I mean, even from hell, he's trying to order Lazarus around. Send him to do this. You see that? And then look at what happens. He's, uh, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Again, what Caleb said, that's a reference to the scriptures. Let them hear the scriptures. That's why we're here tonight, to hear the scriptures. If they want to be rescued from hell... They want to be brought to repentance. You want them to re let them hear the scriptures because there's no other way that a person can be brought to repentance and faith apart from the word of God in the sacred scriptures. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham. My goodness, he's still arguing with Father Abraham. He's arguing with God in hell. I think he's already lost the argument, but it still hasn't gotten through. That's what I'm trying to illustrate here. He still sees the beggar Lazarus as being beneath him, even though he is in heaven at Abraham's bosom. He still thinks he can order the guy around. You see, there is a characteristic of idolatrous unbelief. And it's self-centeredness. It's superiority. It's selfishness. You're thinking only about yourself, and you have an absence of what for someone else? Compassion. Compassion, love, empathy, right? It's all about me, okay? Verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And of course, one would rise from the dead, Christ. But not even his resurrection from the dead can convert apart from the scriptures, the word of God. And that's what the Bible says elsewhere. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let me ask you this question. Um, we've already established this. Did the rich man trust in the Lord God as his Savior? No. Did he pray to the Lord? You say no. And you're actually right. Even if he had voiced prayers, would they have been true prayers? No, because he would have based them on his own works, faith in his own self or his accomplishments. Like, like here, He's talking to Father Abraham. That's no prayer. Even though he's, he's talking to heaven, right? But it's no prayer because it's a faith not in the Lord and his mercy, but in himself. Even if you've been talking to God himself, you've been trying to boss him around. Yeah, look at the works that I've done. I mentioned that in the sermon on Sunday, actually, with respect to love for God and love for the neighbor. And here, the love for the neighbor is <laughs> no love for the neighbor at all. Get Lazarus to do what I want. Do you think he listened to God's word? No. He may have heard it, but he didn't hear it. Just like the Pharisees themselves were experts in the law, but, but 
they didn't actually hear it, right? They thought they knew the law, but they didn't at all. Okay, uh, now I want you to turn the page in Lutheran catechesis. We'll come all throughout the course of Didache, we'll come back to the rich man and Lazarus, we will. And we're still going to talk about them now, but I want you to turn to page 37 in Lutheran Catechesis where you can see the first commandment there. And I'll ask you the commandment, and then I'll ask you the question, and then we'll have a little chat about this, okay? What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, it is um, the God of Abraham. It is our Lord, the triune God, who says, you shall have no other gods. It's not Allah. It's not Buddha. It's the God of the Bible who says this. You shall have no other gods. Now, that comes off in the negative. But according to the explanation, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's what it's saying. If you boiled all that down, what is God asking of you when he says you shall have no other God, gods? And when the catechism describes it as we should fear, love, and trust in God. If you were to boil it down, what is he saying to us? In the simplest terms, trust me. You see that? Trust me. I am the God who made you. I am the God who created you. Trust me. Trust me. I will provide for you. I will care for you. Because I love you. I have made you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Trust me. There is no other God but me. And I am your God, and I love you, and I have made you, and I have redeemed you, and I have saved you. Trust me. We tend not to hear the commandments this way, but I want you to think about it this way. You think about the beggar Lazarus. As Tyler said, a beggar is someone who not only has nothing, but he's totally dependent upon someone else outside of himself. That's what it is to have a God to be totally dependent upon that one in whom you trust, okay? Trust me, okay? Now, I want you to turn uh, to the next page here, page 39, where the second commandment occurs. And I'll ask you the question here, what is the second commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Here again, the Lord is speaking to us. In the Catechism's explanation, how is the connection to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, or to the first commandment idea of trust me, how is that expressed in the explanation? 
How is the connection to the first commandment expressed in the explanation to the second commandment? Amy. Oh, in, in a sense, yes, but um, remember what you said. If you kept the first commandment, you'd keep all the commandments. And what do we just say about the first commandment? What is God inviting us to in this commandment, saying to us? Trust me, trust me. How is that expressed in the explanation to the second commandment? Trust for God. We should fear and love God. That explanation will begin then, or that, those words will begin every explanation after that. That's what I want you to see here first. So the, the explanation to the first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And then every other explanation after that begins with we should fear and love God, which means all of these other commandments rest upon the first. Okay? Uh, Cherie, you want to? So, so the idea is if when we think about the first commandment being trust me, then that follows that we will fear and love God. Is that, is that kind of Well, uh, trust me, what is it to trust God? It is to fear and love God. Okay. okay. It's not, it, it doesn't flow from it. That's another way of describing trust for him, right. is okay. fear and love for him. Okay. okay. Now, Amy was correct that out of the first commandment, you call upon God, okay? So that is, that is true, but I wanted you to see the fear and love uh, part of the explanation here. Now, if the first commandment, God is saying, trust me, what is he inviting us to in the second commandment? Now you can pick up on what you said before. If you could boil this down. Second commandment. First commandment, he says, trust me. Second commandment, what is he saying to us? To us? Pray to me. Call upon me. Okay, do you see, you see that? Here, look at, look at um, call up the last line. Call upon it, his name, in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. I'm trying to boil this down in simple terms first, and then you can go into the details of the explanation a little bit more after that. But, um, Becca, do you trust your father? I, this is not a trick question, okay? <laughs> Have you ever gone to your father for help with something? Yes. And why? Because it was a problem I knew he could fix. Okay. And you trusted him, right? Mm -hmm. If you didn't trust him, would you have gone to him for help? If you knew him to be undependable, unreliable, a man who, though he is your father, he doesn't love you, would you have gone to him for help? No. So notice how the trust and love for the father is behind you going to him for help, right? Okay, so your relationship in these first three commandments, the first and the second, Trust in God. Why do we pray? Because we, because we trust him. Because he's trustworthy. He is dependable. You see? Because what is God saying to us? He says, everything you need, trust me. 
I am your God. I am your creator. I give you daily bread. I make the sunshine every day. I send the rain. I know sometimes you think it's too much or not enough, but without me, you wouldn't have any rain at all. Trust me. Okay? I have given you animals and flocks and herds. And it's not here, but apple orchards and stuff like that. Trust me. Okay? So, what does that trust then cause us to do? Just like Becca with her dad. Pray. Pray as the voice of faith. You call upon God for help. Why? Because you trust him. So you see the relationship between faith, trust in God, and prayer, asking for his help. You see how prayer is the voice of that trust. You follow that? The opposite of that is to curse God. So you notice how there's the negative. We should fear and love God so that we do not curse. Swear, use satanic arts, which is you know, witchcraft and consulting, looking for help from demons and the devil. Lie by his name or deceive by his name. That's all the negative. Okay? Who does that? Someone who does not trust God. So where there's trust for God, we will call upon God. We will pray to him. We will praise him even for the trials and adversities of our life. Who does that? Someone who trusts God and says, God's going to do me good through the things that I'm suffering. I don't know how, but he promises because he says, trust me, I'm your God. How many of us pray like that? So what does that expose in us again? On the basis of the second commandment. Our sin. See? Unbelief or mistrust is behind every sin. The failure to pray. The failure to listen to God. The failure to honor your father and your mother. The failure to help and support your neighbor in his physical need. The lust of adultery. The lust for material possessions. Unbelief, mistrust is behind all of those things. So you were right, Amy. Again, you know, if we trusted God perfectly and completely and kept the first commandment, we would keep all the commandments. God's law shows us our sin and how much we need a Savior. Okay? Starting with the second commandment and throughout the rest of the Ten Commandments, as we look at some more next week, you have always the negative that's condemned and the positive. But understand, behind the negative is unbelief, mistrust. Behind the positive is faith, trust. Okay? So first commandment, he says, trust me. Second commandment, pray to me. Now, the third commandment, if you go over to page 41, I'll ask you those questions. What is the third commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, let me explain a few things. Sabbath, that word means rest. Remember the rest day, literally. Remember the rest day or the day of rest by keeping it holy. Uh, sanctifying it 
the word of God is that which makes something holy. I'll repeat that again. The word of God is what makes something holy or what sanctifies a thing, a person, a day, a place, a work, and so forth. Okay? So this idea of holiness or sanctifying something, whenever anything is done according to God's word, that's what holiness is. So if you love your wife whom God gave you, that's a holy thing because that's what God's word says to do. Okay? Um, when you live faithfully in your station in life as a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, that's a holy life because you're living it according to God's word. Okay? So that's the concept of to sanctify something or to make it holy. So remember the Sabbath, the rest day, by keeping it holy or sanctifying it. And what sanctifies the day of rest is God's word. Now, in the Old Testament, there was the Sabbath day as the seventh day, a specific day. But that's not really what the third commandment is about. What the third commandment is about is the rest that comes through God's word and the sanctifying of our lives that comes from God's word. Okay. So I give you that explanation before going into the explanation in the catechism because it helps you understand why the explanation in the catechism is what it is. So remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God. There's our first commandment connection again. Keep going. So that we do not despise preaching and his word. There's the negative. Go on. But hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Hold what sacred? The word of God. Gladly hear and learn it. What? The word of God. So we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So first commandment, God is saying to us, trust me. And out of this trust, in the second commandment, he's saying, pray to me. So if you were to boil down the third commandment that has to do with God's word, what is he saying to us here? Boil it down, simple, positive terms. Hear me, yes. Hear me. Listen to me. Hear me. Okay? Hear me. Hear me. Trust me. Pray to me. Listen to me. Hear me. And there's a wonderful circle in these things because we learn that trust in God, based on our reading about the rich man and Lazarus, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear the word of God. That's what will bring them to faith or to trust in the Lord. Without the word of God, they can't come to faith. That's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And out of the trust of the heart created by the word is the voice of faith that prays to him, that calls upon him. So the word creates faith by which we call upon the promises of God's word. The word creates faith by which we call upon him. You see how they, they all go together. These first three commandments are kind of a trinity. Now, do we trust God? No. 
Do we pray to him faithfully? No. Do we listen and eagerly want to hear his word? Or do we often despise preaching in his word, especially the pastor's not interesting? Um, yeah. So see how the law is showing us our sin always and how much we need a Savior. And now here, this is our conclusion for tonight before the sacrament. The law cannot save us, but the law is good. Right? I mean, is it good to trust God? Is it good to pray to Him? Is it good to listen to His word? Absolutely. But there's so much mistrust and such a failure to pray, and our ears are so often stopped to hear his word. Lord, have mercy upon us. And that's one of the things that the law is a function for, to show us our sin and how much we need a Savior so that we confess our sin and that we flee from ourselves to Christ. And that's what repentance is. Some people think of repentance, especially a lot of Beck, Becca's friends, that I learned from the first commandment that it's a sin not to trust God. Therefore, I'm going to trust God and I'm never going to mistrust him again. And I can do it. Well, you're lying before you start. Or I learned from God's word I'm to pray. And I'm going to repent and I'm never going to not pray again. I'm going to pray all the time. Well, you, you liar. Okay? You get the idea. So some, sometimes people say, I'm never going to. Repentance means that you stop sinning. Okay? Um, that's not repentance. Which doesn't mean I'm encouraging you to continue in sin. That's not the point. But repentance is you'll be brought to the knowledge of the sin and you flee from reliance upon yourself to reliance upon Christ, which is the ongoing activity of the Christian life, the baptismal life. That's why I went over with Becca here about, about the, the old Adam and the new man, the sinful flesh and the spirit of God. There's a warfare there. The spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Lord, have mercy. So the law is used not only to teach us what is right and wrong, but to bring about our repentance so we flee from reliance upon self to reliance upon Christ. And then this very final point, his forgiveness is good news. Because it's not based upon our works of the law, but it's based upon his work. And it is a proclamation of forgiveness, which is a free gift to us whom he loves and for whom he died. Almighty God, whom to know is everlasting life, grant us to know your son to be the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we prayed at the beginning collect for this lesson. So that message of God's love in Christ, his forgiveness, which is a gift of his love, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his grace, what do we call that message? Anyone? It has a term in the scriptures. 
for that message of forgiveness, not on the basis of, it's the gospel. Yeah, it's the gospel. So the gospel gives what the law demands. The gospel creates what the law requires. You want me to repeat that again? The gospel gives what the law demands. What does the law demand? Trust for God. Prayers to God. Listening to God. That's what the law demands. The gospel gives or creates in us what the law demands. Now, the gospel forgives our sin, but out of that forgiveness and mercy, it also creates a desire to love God, to trust in him, to pray to him. The more we receive his gospel, his forgiving word, the more we love him. So going back to the little analogy, which is actually quite, it's more than an analogy. It's your father's dependability and love for you that is inspired in you, Becca, trust for him. Okay? Do you always trust him? No. Do you always go to him? No. But look at him. Does he always love you? How about that? How much more God, who has given us his only son. So he's given us his son to die for our sins and to freely forgive us. And he loves us just the way we are, not that he likes us continuing in sin, that's not the point, but he accepts us with his mercy and forgiveness. And that's what creates trust for him and a desire to pray to him rightly on the basis of, not my works, I don't deserve anything, I'm a beggar like Lazarus, okay? But inspires us to call upon him in our time of need. Because we've learned from his forgiveness and mercy in Jesus that he is dependable. Okay? All right. Now, every week when we start, we'll always do a little bit of review of where we were uh, before going into the new material. And what we've begun today will be foundation as we continue to go through uh, the commandments. And we'll go to lesson two next time. Between now and next week, I invite you and encourage you to read as much from lesson one as you desire and are able to. The terms that are listed under each of the commandments, like under the third Sabbath to keep holy preaching in the word of God, the definitions for them are found in the back of Lutheran Catechesis, beginning at page 305. And they run in sequence. They're arranged according to the commandments or whatever part of the catechism we're in. Okay? So I, I would invite you to do that. What our sessions will do is focus upon the main thing and always look at the catechism with Christ in view. Okay? And that's why the symbol in the front of the book has the crucifix here. So... Ten Commandments, Creed, and Lord's Prayer, these three symbols, Commandments, Creed, and Lord's Prayer, depicted by the tablets, the cross, the hand, and the dove for the creed, the praying hands for prayer. And then what create that, baptism, 
the forgiveness of absolution and preaching and the Lord's Supper that orbit around that, at the center of that is the person and work of Christ. So when we're looking at every aspect of the catechism, whether it's the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, the Sixth Commandment, the Seventh Commandment, or what have you, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, it's all always going to relate back to the person and work of Jesus. Okay? All right, let us uh, prepare for the Lord's Supper. Next week we will sing a hymn. Please stand. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them and I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, in holy baptism you have called us to be Christians and granted us the remission of sins. Make us ready to receive the most holy body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of all our sins, and grant us grateful hearts that we may give thanks to you, O Father, to your Son, and to the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary 
that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who out of love for his fallen creation humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Risen from the dead, he has freed us from eternal death and given us life everlasting. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabbath, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit. And you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. body of Christ given for you, the 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 body of Christ given for you. 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 blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. 
The body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. He is good, and his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you, even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.